It is customary in Judaism to dedicate a teaching in memory of someone. This week's mini-series is in the name of Celia Hennick Feldman, my grandmother. You heard her in the very first episode of Jew Ought to Know. To say that she was a character doesn't even begin to cover it. Born in Ludge, Poland in 1923, she survived the horrors of the Holocaust and came to America in 1946. As she liked to say, the Holocaust will never be forgotten, but she managed to go on with her life and to raise her family in freedom. When she died two weeks ago, just shy of 97 years old, she left three children, eight grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren, what she called her village. Resilient, energetic, witty, and opinionated, she was larger than life and is already greatly missed. She has been on my mind throughout the next episodes that you'll hear. And with that, let us begin. The whole thing began unraveling with a blind man's daughter and a determined Jewish prosecutor in Germany and secret photographs from secret agents. Ricardo Clement was your ordinary Argentinian worker living in an ordinary suburb of Buenos Aires with his ordinary family. He had his small home and he had his routines. But around the world, little tidbits of information about him were coming together like drops of water pulled towards the center. People were looking for him and then they found him. Slowly and deliberately, they put together a plan that would shock the entire world. So who would be after Ricardo Clement in his boring and ordinary Argentinian life? The answer, of which he later expressed no surprise, was Israel. And that's because Israel believed him to be not Ricardo Clement, ordinary Argentinian, but instead Nazi mastermind Adolf Eichmann, with the blood of six million Jews on his hands. And they were right. By 1960, Israel had all the information it needed, and the order came down from Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to Israel's spies. Go get him, and bring him back here. So began one of the most extraordinary stories of chutzpah and justice in the 20th century, and would open the floodgates for a subject that most Israelis have been trying to ignore for 15 years. The Holocaust. It was finally time for the Jewish state to talk about it. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. All right, so I am trying something new and different, a bingeable mini season within a season. Over the next week, starting today, I'll be releasing five episodes on just one single story, the hunt, capture, and trial of Nazi mastermind Adolf Eichmann. This mini-season takes place right along our trajectory here in season four on Israeli history from 1948 to 1967. It's a deep dive into one particular bit of history that I find fascinating and a great story and that says a lot about Israel. Now, there are any number of tellings of this story, books and movies and varying accounts and secrets that later came to light, I can't tell you that every fact in here is the ultimate truth. There are lots of conflicting accounts, and many of the stories come from the spies involved, people not exactly known for giving up the whole narrative. But nearly all the versions of this tale share many of the same points, and it goes something like this. 
Down on the chicken farm in a little hamlet in northern Germany, Otto Henninger was getting nervous. The year was 1948. The name Adolf Eichmann was popping up in places, associated with the mass murder of the Jewish people during the Nazi regime. People were looking for Eichmann, and this is what made Henninger nervous. Because as it turns out, Otto Henninger was Adolf Eichmann. He had been hiding out in this village for a while, known to all as an exceedingly pleasant man who played a lovely violin and charmed the local ladies. But perhaps it was now time to leave, and maybe even time to leave Europe altogether. This was neither the first nor the last time that Adolf Eichmann changed his name. In 1944, Adolf Eichmann was at the top of his game, so to speak. A lieutenant colonel in the dreaded SS, Eichmann had been the Nazi's resident expert on Judaism and Jewish affairs for some years. He was head of the Jewish department, which meant stripping the Jews of their wealth, organizing them for mass deportation, and keeping track of the enormous numbers of Jews being murdered as the Nazis marched across Eastern Europe and Russia. In 1942, he had been one of the key players in the conference that set forth the final solution, the systematic murder of all the Jews of Europe. From then on, Eichmann was essentially the operations manager for the Holocaust, ensuring that all the necessary logistics were in place to move large numbers of Jews from their homes to the death camps. It would be incorrect to say that he was responsible for the entirety of the final solution, or that he was in charge or involved with every aspect of it. He was not. But he was involved in much of it, and especially in certain areas at certain times. In 1944, he arrived in Hungary as the senior figure in charge of deporting Hungary's 800,000 Jews to the camps, mostly to Auschwitz, where most were murdered. He was exceptionally proud of his status and his value to Hitler in the superbly organized, highly efficient, systematic process he engineered for the destruction of the Jews. But the Nazis were losing the war, and in December of 1944, Eichmann retreated to Berlin as the Russians closed in on Budapest. But the Allies were coming for Berlin, too, and Eichmann then knew the game was up. Ranking officers were tossing their uniforms and running off, attempting to disappear as quickly as possible. With Hitler trapped in his bunker, Eichmann knew it was time for him to leave, too. He gathered his few remaining staff and gave them permission to flee, promising himself to fight to his end. When the time comes, he insisted, I will gladly and happily jump into the pit with the knowledge that with me are five million enemies of the Reich. Of course, he actually had no such intention. He wasn't much interested in being a martyr. At the end of the war, Eichmann and several of his men were near his small hometown village of Alta Uzi in Austria. When the Germans surrendered, he simply went home to his wife and children. Despite the scenic calm of the Austrian Alps, it was dangerous for Eichmann to stick around his hometown, Alta Uzi. The Allies were looking for him, and not just the Americans. The Russians too, as well as vigilante groups of Jewish survivors. He was at that point more of a person of interest rather than a known war criminal like he is today. The Jews knew of his brutality, but the Allies knew him as one of the many ranking SS officers scattered all over the place. But his men were well aware of his, shall we say, accomplishments, and they quickly abandoned him. No one wanted to be the guy standing next to him if he got caught. He was down to one loyal aide. Saying goodbye to his wife Vera and their three boys, Eichmann and his aide took to the mountains outside his hometown, heading in the direction of Germany, 
where he thought he could better hide. A few days later, outside the city of Salzburg, Austria, they were captured by an American patrol. He gave a false name and didn't have the papers to prove it one way or the other. They were both taken into custody, but that night Eichmann and his buddies simply ducked under the barbed wire around the POW camp and continued on. They posed as destitute German soldiers trying to get home to their families and were able to pass an American checkpoint. But when they got to the German border, they were stopped and searched. It turned out that Eichmann had a tattoo. SS officers all received small black tattoos of their blood type underneath their armpits, and sure enough, the Americans discovered Eichmann's. This meant that he wasn't some nobody soldier, but a VIP. Yes, he admitted, he was an SS officer. His name was Otto Ekman. He was briefly questioned and sent to join hundreds of other captured Germans on work details in various POW camps. The Americans now had Adolf Eichmann in their possession, but they didn't know it. Otto Ekman was moved around from one American labor camp to the other. He even encountered Holocaust survivors from time to time, but was never recognized. He surely appreciated the irony. For in the aftermath of the war, the name Adolf Eichmann was getting more and more notorious. The tribunal sits in judgment upon 20 leaders of the Nazi party. Opening the Allied case against the defendants, Chief American Prosecutor Justice Jackson. Of opening the first trial in history, for crimes against the peace of the world imposes a grave responsibility. The Nuremberg trials in 1945 and 1946, organized by the Allies to bring to justice high-ranking Nazis, really turbocharged the search for Adolf Eichmann as more than just a person of interest. It was during the trials that Eichmann's name came up as high-ranking Nazis cited him as one of the chief architects of the murder of what they thought was five or six million Jews a number that many claimed to have come from Eichmann himself. Desperate to unload responsibility from themselves, Eichmann's former comrades turned on him. He became a pariah instead of a hero to them, the guy, in their desperate revisionism, singularly responsible for the final solution, from whom they were simply following orders, and whom they would be more than happy to assist the Allies in finding. The problem was, no one really had a clue where he was. The ongoing search turned up lots of leads, but it was complicated. The biggest problem was that no one had any good pictures of him. He'd always been careful about photography. Although he played a leading role in the Nazi hierarchy, he was deep in the bureaucracy. You didn't see him on TV at rallies with Hitler or surrounded by fawning aides. The Allies didn't really know what he looked like, a huge advantage in an ocean of captured German prisoners of war. And Eichmann, posing as Otto Ekman, had another advantage. He was plugged in. He was well aware of the news accounts and that he was a wanted man. It was only a matter of time until a savvy American interrogator figured him out. But he also had friends. Several fellow POWs knew his real identity, and they had relatives and friends on the outside who were willing to help. It was time to bolt. A fellow SS officer's sister helped him hide and escape from the American POW camp, and accompanied him on a journey across Germany with false papers. No one expected a fugitive Adolf Eichmann to be traveling with a woman. In March of 1946, at the age of 40, Eichmann arrived in a small village in the forest outside Hamburg, Germany. He was now known as Otto Henninger. He lived anonymously as a lumberjack while maintaining his contacts to keep tabs in the search for Adolf Eichmann. 
Eventually, he bought that small chicken farm just a couple miles from Bergen Belsen, one of the most notorious concentration camps where Anne Frank and thousands of others had perished. In her masterful account of Eichmann's time on the run, Bettina Stangneth writes that Eichmann's neighbors, who knew him as Otto Henninger, met a pleasant man who didn't drink or gamble, organized a fair distribution of rations, knew his way around the red tape, was intelligent and polite, and paid his rent on time. He was charming, she writes of their impression. The last couple years in the 1940s, for him, living in these little hamlets in the forests, were, writes Stanneck, tranquil and unremarkable. He had settled right into anonymity as a local chicken farmer. He sold eggs to the Germans, to British soldiers, and even, astonishingly, to Jewish Holocaust survivors who lived in nearby displaced persons camps. No one ever recognized him. But outside the quiet confines of the forest, the Allies were still looking for him, and so were the Jews. In 1947, Adolf Eichmann's wife, Vera, who remained with their three children in Altaiusi, Austria, tried to retroactively declare her husband dead. The Nazi mastermind, she claimed in various paperwork, had died in 1945. The Allies were looking for nobody. Simon Wiesenthal was a Jewish survivor of several concentration camps. He returned home after the war to Linz, Austria, determined to track down as many Nazi officials as he could, he lived only a few blocks away from Eichmann's parents and knew exactly who they were. For 15 years, he painstakingly gathered tips and tidbits about Eichmann's location, passing clues along to prominent Jewish organizations and later on Israeli intelligence. He was a man possessed by the need to find Eichmann and bring him to justice. Wiesenthal quickly proved that Vera Eichmann's paperwork had been falsified, and this demonstrated an irony. If his wife was lying about him being dead, surely it was because he was still alive and out there somewhere. Frankly, Vera Eichmann should have known better. From the moment the war ended, she and her family had been closely watched and frequently questioned. Her and Eichmann's other relatives had their every move scrutinized. A year earlier, in 1946, a Jewish vigilante group followed Vera and Eichmann's brother as they covertly brought food and supplies to a group of four men living in a small home up in the mountains clearly hiding out. The Jews were convinced that one of the men was Eichmann himself. So one night, they burst into the cabin and grabbed him, dragging him outside. The man was an SS officer who confessed to having murdered Jews in the mobile killing squads that roamed across Eastern Europe. But it wasn't Eichmann. The Jews shot him dead. The problem, again, was that no one had a reliable photograph of the guy. In the meantime, a Haganah spy from Palestine was also on the case. The Haganah, remember, was the Israeli army before Israel was founded. For weeks, he had followed around one of Eichmann's former mistresses and then struck up a relationship with her, pretending to be a former SS officer. At long last, she bragged about her high-ranking Nazi ex-boyfriend and at his gentle prodding, showed him a picture she kept in an album. The spy had the Austrian police seize the photo and copies were distributed all over Europe. Finally, Wiesenthal said, we know what he looks like. It's only a matter of time until we get him. 
There followed a strange incident that has never been fully explained. On Christmas in 1948, suddenly there appeared in the little town of Altayusi a small horde of Austrian police, Israeli intelligence agents, and Simon Wiesenthal. Wiesenthal, it seems, had been tipped off that Eichmann was planning a secret visit to his wife and children, braving exposure to cross borders just to see them. The Israelis agreed to pay thousands of dollars to the Austrian police to arrest him and hand him over. They lay in wait, but Eichmann never showed. And it's unclear why. Was their cover blown? Did Wiesenthal get bad intel? Did Eichmann decide against it for some reason, or was there never a plan in the first place? Or perhaps Eichmann lay a trap for the Nazi hunters, wanting to see if they were still after him. Clearly they were, and this was worrisome. And so back at the chicken farm in the little German forest village, Otto Henninger was really starting to feel the pressure. Adolf Eichmann's name was constantly coming up as a mass murderer. He knew how the Jewish vigilante group had killed someone they thought was him. He knew his family was under constant surveillance. And although he was living anonymously fairly successfully, he too figured that it was only a matter of time until a chance encounter blew his cover. It was time to get off the continent and make his way to the great Nazi refuge across the sea, Argentina. So why Argentina? Well, President Juan Perón of Argentina had greatly admired the fascist regimes of Europe, particularly the Nazis. He believed fascist governments effective in supporting the ordinary worker and boosting the common people's political involvement. He also appreciated the tools of dictatorship and organized violence, which he employed on many occasions. Perón thought the Nuremberg trials were a total sham. Like many countries, including the United States, Perón wanted to soak up Nazi scientists and industrialists to help boost Argentina's economy. He had former Nazis as high-level advisors and charged them with building a network to smuggle their comrades into the country from wherever they were hiding out in Europe. At the same time, Argentina was also bringing in tens of thousands of Jewish refugees, more than any other country except for the United States and Israel. As he had former Nazi advisors, he also had Jewish ones. Despite the deep influence of Catholicism in both society and government, Perón made sure to appoint Jews to positions of prominence in all kinds of institutions. Argentina was the first Latin American country to recognize Israel and cut a trade deal with the new state. Both Chaim Weizmann and Golda Meir visited him. So Eichmann, like many other infamous Nazis, knew that he would find a welcoming community of expat Germans in Argentina, a community that in some corners remained as fanatical, conspiratorial, and obsessively anti-Semitic as the Third Reich. He would certainly be amongst friends and protected at the highest levels of government. It's still unclear today exactly how Eichmann put together his escape route, but he had considerable help from friendly comrades all over Western Europe, as well as the Argentinian government and clergy from the Catholic Church. He got paperwork from Argentina in the name of Ricardo Clement and a visa in which to gain entry. He had only to make it to South America. The whole escape was professionally organized, run as a smuggling operation out of Argentina with a pipeline that ran through various priests in the Catholic Church. Eichmann wasn't the only one to insert himself into this stream, 
lots of Nazis were getting out of Europe through similar collection points and ports. With the help of friends, he left the German forest and made his way to Innsbruck, Austria. Staying overnight in guest houses owned by friendly Confederates, he crossed from Austria into Italy and headed towards Genoa on the coast. In Italy, he stayed at a Franciscan monastery that served as a waypoint for other escaping Nazis. Eichmann forever credited the Catholic Church with helping make his escape. He hid out for two weeks while obtaining the necessary paperwork to travel, a passport from the International Red Cross, visas for travel, medical records, identity cards, tickets for passage on a ship, all in the name of Ricardo Clement. In the five years after the war, Adolf Eichmann's name had become a byword for the evil that was the Nazis' final solution. During those same five years, except for a couple of close calls immediately after the German surrender, the real Adolf Eichmann remained totally unknown. Not even a hint of his whereabouts in Germany rose to the surface. In the summer of 1950, Ricardo Clement boarded a ship in Genoa and set sail for Latin America. I felt like a hunted deer that has finally managed to shake off its pursuer, Eichmann later wrote. I was overcome by a wave of the sense of freedom. When his feet touched the ground in Argentina, he said, My heart was filled with joy. The fear that someone could denounce me vanished. I was there and in safety. His network set him up with a job and a steady income and a house. And in 1952, he wrote to his wife Vera back in Austria, pretending to be her long-lost brother who had survived the war. Vera and his three supposed nephews soon joined him. It had been seven years since they had seen each other. Back in Europe, the occasional clue would rise to the surface, but nothing happened. The CIA wasn't interested. They were bringing Nazis into America by the dozen to boost their military programs. West Germany was riddled with former Nazis and didn't want that kind of embarrassing exposure. Israeli intelligence was too busy managing Israel's many crises to chase down stray leads and didn't have the resources to mount an operation at scale in Argentina. So it wasn't so much that the trail went cold, but that it went neglected. Ten years after the fall of the Third Reich, it seemed that Adolf Eichmann had gotten away with it. Ensconced in Argentina, Adolf Eichmann was doing pretty well as Ricardo Clement. He was surrounded by his family, friends, and former Nazis who appreciated him as a celebrity rock star of the Third Reich. He was protected by the Argentinian government. His life wasn't glamorous, but he was doing fine with steady employment, and he could look forward to the future a little bit. He and his wife even had another baby boy. But then, in the late 1950s, his 19-year-old son Klaus met a girl, and Eichmann's whole new life began crumbling away. That's the next episode, which you can listen to right now. The music today is Sela Sue, Emanuela Chiotaki, Max Ablitzer, and a tango by Zamar. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraut. See you soon. <laughs>